Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening where we have the opportunity and the privilege, really, to explore this very rich topic of theology of the body. And we are doing so with Christopher West's work, The Love That Satisfies, which is a work that engages the encyclical of Benedict XVI, God is Love. And what Christopher West does is he looks at the first half of that document, where Benedict XVI takes up the relationship between eros and agape. Again, eros is that human, erotic, physical love, and agape, that divine, sacrificial, cross-like love. And so we are made to see these two in light of each other, and certainly Christopher West does a beautiful job of exploring all of the principles that Benedict XVI himself asserts so as to better understand the relationship between Eros and Agape. And we are in chapter 7. Huh? So if you have your books out there, if you can turn to page 117, and we are on excerpt 45. Eros directs man towards marriage, to a bond which is unique and definitive. Thus, and only thus, does it fulfill its deeper purpose. Okay, so as Christopher West poses the question, what is the deepest purpose of Eros? Is this not a question, my friends, that we have been reflecting upon over recent months? Certainly, it is not only to direct men and women towards marriage, but in doing so, also towards Christ and his love for the church. The reason God gave us a yearning for sexual union in the first place is simply to point us to the eternal union of Christ and the church. And it has the capacity to do so, my friends, only to the degree that Eros truly images and participates in Christ's love for the church. That is, to the degree that Eros is inspired by and integrated with agape. So, We are now then made to reflect upon whose love, but Christ's love, right? And how Christ's love is not a compulsive response to an urge. Christ loves the church freely. What do we read in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 18? No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. So Christ's love has no safety nets, no back doors, no half measures, no escape clauses. Christ loves the church without reservation. As John 13, 1 reminds us, he loved them to the end. Remember that image that I have been reflecting with over recent weeks. You know, the question is posed, could Jesus Christ have saved the world with a drop of his blood? The answer is yes, because God can do whatever he wants to do. But I think the more important question is, why not? Well, and as we've talked about If there is five and a half to six quarts of human blood in the body, then Jesus Christ had five and a half, six quarts of blood to give. 
He reminds us that enough is never enough until the last drop, until we have given everything that we can possibly give. So there he is on the cross, giving every last ounce of blood. This is what we intend to mean when we say Christ loves without reservation. And now there is no questioning the difficulty of this challenge. Why? Because we fall in love and the next day we fall out of love. We are one day quite satisfied and the next very dissatisfied. One day content, the next day discontent. We are a very fickle people. And yet, this is what Christ calls us to, to just not love without reservation, but also to love faithfully. Christ's love is not a one-night stand, here today and gone tomorrow. No, He loves the church faithfully. What does He say to us in Matthew 28, 20? I am with you always. And Christ's love is not sterilely turned in on itself. Christ loves the church fruitfully. That is, with the goal of expanding the circle of communion. Here we should be thinking about, of course, Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, and certainly bearing forth life. John 10, what does he say? I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So, as Christopher West notes, this free, total, faithful, and fruitful self-giving is what erotic love is meant to express. Another name for this kind of love is marriage. Free, total, faithful, fruitful love, in fact, is precisely what a man and woman commit to at the altar. What does the priest or deacon say? I think many of us know the words. Have you come here freely and without reservation to give yourselves to each other in marriage? Do you promise to be faithful until death? Do you promise to receive children lovingly from God? Well, the answer is a resounding yes. That yes, in so many ways, is the richest affirmation of eros, again, that human erotic love, in its integral relationship with agape, that divine sacrificial love. And so it is, right? That throughout their lives, spouses are to be faithful witnesses to the world of this beautiful relationship that is made to exist between eros and agape. In the ins and outs, the ups and downs, good times and bad of married life, spouses are to do what? But continue to offer that yes, that affirmation, that amen to the beauty and goodness of being created male and female in the image of God, who himself lives in that eternal exchange of life-giving love. Remember that definition that comes to us in a careful reflection of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is love given, love received, and love shared. And ultimately, this encounter with love ought to open us up to the greatness of that free, total, faithful, and fruitful self-gift. Now, when erotic love is cut off from agape, eros fails even to recognize itself. It doesn't understand that is eros or realize its orientation towards marriage to a bond which is unique and definitive, as Benedict XVI said there in God is Love. 
In fact, as Christopher West notes, a disintegrated eros comes to see marriage as an obstacle to its own fulfillment, an impediment to its unrestrained indulgence. This is a point we've kind of played around with over recent months. I mean, how often do we hear marriage called a ball and a chain? When we indulge eros without restraint, as we have already seen, we don't find the happiness we expected to find. It is only fleeting. It is only passing. And as the Catechism reminds us, the alternative is clear. Either man governs his passions and finds peace, or he lets himself be dominated by them and becomes unhappy. That's paragraph 2339. So governing eros means overcoming the tyranny, we can say, of our fallen passions. Liberating the heart to seek what it truly desires at its deepest level, a love that lasts forever. Remember what we've talked about in the past as it relates to this. If God is love, then love, like God himself, is something what? Eternal, infinite. Hence, if I give someone authentic love, in a sense, I give that person what? But eternity. And if that person receives it, takes it in, and makes a permanent home for love in his or her heart, then that person will live forever. And that single truth, my friends, I believe we find the wonder and the beauty of the self-gift, that great call that is before us as spouses to help our spouses to heaven. So important. So, governing Eros frees us to offer and experience such a love and never to settle for anything else. Okay, dropping down now to Benedict's next excerpt here, where Benedict the Sixteenth says, corresponding to the image of a monotheistic God is monogamous marriage. So, what's going on here? Since marriage is a great mystery that refers to Christ and the church, the way we conceive of marriage has a direct impact on the way we conceive of Christ and the church. Change your understanding of marriage, and we change our understanding of Christ and the church, of God and his love for us. Conversely, our concept of God and his love for us has a direct bearing on our understanding of marriage. Believing in one God, monotheism, logically leads to and calls for loving one spouse, monogamy. There is one God who lives a unity in distinction among three persons. Recall what we have talked about before in the past, huh? That this one God in the person of Christ has one bride, one church made up of a great multitude of persons who live and are meant to live a unity in distinction. It's funny when you think about the word Catholic and what it means in this context. I believe it to be very important, and certainly Christopher West takes this up. He says, to call the church Catholic is to recognize that it is universal. Catholic means what? Universal. Catholique. The word universal, interestingly enough, when you break down its compound, means what? Oneness. Uni. Okay? Among many. Versa. 
So universal speaks to the oneness among many. So when the followers of Christ fail to live in unity, that is, when they fail to live in this Catholicity, in a sense, they make of Christ a polygamist. I mean, think about that. This is the kind of thing that Paul wants us to start considering. I mean, consider what he says here in Ephesians 4, verses 3 to 6. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. That's Ephesians 4, verses 3 to 6. So there is one church, one bride, precisely because there is one God, one bridegroom. So Christ's fidelity to his bride flows from the fidelity of love within the Trinity, that perfect eternal exchange of love. If spousal love flows from Christ, it leads to one spouse, one bond, one union, one marriage. Amen to that. Okay, moving forward, here Christopher West continues, and this is Benedict 16th. Marriage based on exclusive and definitive love becomes the icon of the relationship between God and his people and vice versa. God's way of loving becomes the measure of human love. Here we might be able to go to John Paul II to help us out a little bit where he says, at the basis of the understanding of marriage in its very essence stands Christ's spousal relationship with the church. In turn, marriage becomes a visible sign of the eternal divine mystery according to the image of the church united with Christ. In this way, Ephesians leads us to the very foundations of the sacramentality of marriage. So, marriage is a sacrament that reveals Christ's love for the church, and Christ's love for the church is the ultimate reality that demonstrates the meaning and orientation of marriage as a sacrament. As Christopher West says, they point to each other. So, what's going on here? Again, we're made to reflect upon the importance of that great hymn that comes to us from Philippians 2, verses 6 to 11. Where Christ did not deem equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took the form of a slave, being obedient unto the cross, unto death. In that moment, my friends, on the cross, what we have is a revelation of agape, a profound revelation of insight into the life of the Trinity. Christ pouring himself out on the cross is a sacrament of his love for the church. And this is what we imitate. This is what we enter into in our own marriages. And what's more, it is in this invitation to spouses to participate in Christ's love for the church that we discover, as Benedict XVI says, God's way of loving becomes the measure of human love. This is a difficult love, no question about it. No one can live it on his or her own, but we are not on our own. What does Paul say in Romans 5, verse 5? God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I mean, what is that verse? I'm thinking of John 16, verse 7, talking about why it's better that he goes. 
because that in going, he can give us this great gift of the Holy Spirit. Think about that for a second. What do you mean, Jesus? It's better for you to leave us. Yes, because in leaving you, I can now give you the power of the Holy Spirit. I now give you the very sharing of the love between me and my Father. This is what is necessary. I believe that to be a most provocative truth, a most provocative moment in the Gospel of John. And so it is. This is the gift that we have received at Pentecost, this gift of fire, this gift of love, this gift of communion. And it is only in and through the power coming from the Holy Spirit that men and women are able to love eros in its fullest, in its most beautiful dimensions. The church's sexual ethic begins to make sense when viewed through this lens. It is not a prudish list of prohibitions, as Christopher West says, and I believe that to be so important. It is a call to embrace our own greatness, our own godlike dignity. It is a call to live the love we are created for, a call to experience the integration of eros and agape and to enjoy the abundant joys that come from this integration. Remember, we were created from love for love. And apart from understanding the source of love itself, we will not only be left clutching an empty space, but again, in that disintegration of eros, we will become profoundly frustrated. And so it is, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, created anew in the purity of Christ, we see things as God sees them. Remember that great beatitude, blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. The heart can now see God. Heart speaks to heart. Okay, so how might we sum up what we've talked about up to this point? Well, if the consummative act is meant to express the language of agape, then it is meant to express that free, total, and fruitful gift of self. In other words, the consummative act if it is to be an honest expression of eros agape love, must express the marriage commitment itself. Sexual union incarnates marital love, or at least it is meant to do so. This is what we strive towards, right? It is meant to be that embrace in which the words of the wedding vows become flesh are realized. Ultimately, all questions of sexual morality come down to one simple question. And this is the question that the church has proposed through the ages, and certainly today, where so many different sexual ethics are in question. Does the act participate in God's free, total, faithful, and fruitful love, or does it not? If it does not, we should not settle for it. That's the challenge. Right? What does the word challenge again mean? Provocatio, to call forth, to call out. Challenges are meant to be overcome. They exist to be overcome. They exist to make us a better version of who God is calling us to be. I know there are a number of both Catholic and non-Catholic listeners out there. And certainly when you start getting into sexual ethics, this is, among so many others, this might be the hottest button of them all. 
I think we have to be honest with ourselves and at the very least engage in the conversation, engage in the dialogue. What are we talking about here? What are the principles? What is the church wanting to say? Is it some distant, punitive, institutional, hierarchical, authoritarian waving its finger? Or is it a mother who wants us to look at ourselves at a deeper level as created in the image and likeness of God and ask new questions? And in those new questions, we might find a new beginning. I oppose the latter because ultimately, if we take up that question, we will discover something anew. And at the very least, what I encourage you, my dear friends and dear listeners, is to have the dialogue. You can email me at jholljmj at yahoo.com. Please don't hesitate to email if you have any questions or if you just want to dialogue further about this, because this is very, very important subject matter. Okay, that being said, let us go ahead and jump into chapter eight of this work titled Union and Eucharist. This might be one of my favorite chapters, and we will start with excerpt 48. Uh, these are the words of Benedict XVI. The ancient world had dimly perceived that man's real food, what truly nourishes him as man, is ultimately the logos, eternal wisdom. This same logos now truly becomes food for us as love. So, as Christopher Weston makes note here, the philosophers of the ancient world remotely sense that to reach one's source, the wisdom, the ultimate reason behind man's existence, the logos, was the path to human fulfillment, the true nourishment, quote-unquote, of man's being. Still, as indicated by the altar to an unknown god in Athens, the ancient philosophers sought this God in the hope that they might feel after him and find him. If you're to go to Acts chapter 17, verse 27 and following, this is what you read. But they ultimately could not reach him. They did not know him. Step in Paul. Paul, standing in the middle of the Areopagus in Athens, audaciously proclaims to the seekers that he knows this unknown God. He assures him that this Logos is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, he says. As even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. This, uh, in so many ways, too, highlights the spirit of the new evangelization to go into the heart of a culture, take the understanding of God, and augment that with the fullness of truth, doing so with concrete images. I find this to be most striking, and certainly um, Paul is the man to do this. Remember who we are talking about here. Paul, one Saul, was the prized pupil of the great Rabbi Gamaliel, who we were introduced to in Acts 5. As our ancient resources have it, Rabbi Gamaliel was uh, the rabbi of rabbis, uh, the master teacher. It was once said of him, when Rabbi Gamaliel died, the glory of the Torah died. Have you ever listened to anyone and have been so moved by their words, they brought about a certain glory to the discipline they were teaching? Well, this was Rabbi Gamaliel, and the glory was the Old Testament. So why is this significant? Well, again, Saul 
was his prized pupil. So here you have a man experience this dramatic conversion and ultimately becomes one of the great apostles. And it's interesting to note, if you were to go into Acts and ultimately some of his epistles, after his conversion, he went into the synagogue and he preached the truth of Jesus Christ, and then he left. Well, in his epistles, he talks about the length of that leave, three years. Historians speak to the possibility of him going into the Arabian Peninsula, maybe uh, Mount Sinai, where he would have reflected into the significance of his encounter with Jesus Christ. He himself, he himself was steeped in philosophy, and now he had to wrestle with this Logos incarnate so as to acquire just not a deeper understanding of it, but of course for St. Paul, how to communicate this, how best to communicate Jesus Christ as the fulfillment to the prophetic thrust of the Old Testament. And so it is no wonder that when he comes back, he meets with Peter. And I love the the Greek there in the exchange between Peter and Paul, that he literally interviewed him for a period of 15 days. Here was a man in Paul that was made to wrestle with the deepest questions. And so to have him being the man to go into the Areopagus, it makes a lot of sense. So all of that being said, as certainly Paul explained, (laughs) this Logos, in fact, is closer to us than the ancient world could have ever imagined. That in the fullness of time, the Logos for which man has reached, reached back for man. In the fullness of time, this Logos actually became a man, born of a woman, as Paul talks about in Galatians 4.4. And as Benedict says, this same Logos now truly becomes food for us. Can you not hear those words echo into your ear? (laughs) Psalm 34, verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. In the Old Testament, this idea of tasting the Lord's goodness was merely a metaphor. But my dear friends, in the New Testament, the Lord's goodness becomes real food and real drink. And if we eat this food and drink this cup, we will live forever. You know, it is a most provoking study to go to the Gospel of John and to start with its opening verses because he really highlights that Jesus Christ is the Word, is the Logos, and that Logos is now incarnate. But it certainly doesn't stop there because in the opening chapter, we have the Baptist beholding this incarnation of Logos as the Lamb of God. And as John develops this theme, we are to receive this lamb as actual food in our Eucharist steros, in our thanksgiving to God. So when Christ says what he says, you must eat of the body and drink of the blood to have eternal life, he means it literally. He means it literally. It's interesting to note if you're to go to John 6, 53, there's a transition of language. We've talked about this before moving from the eating as we might sit down and eat at the dinner table to eating specific kind of animal stock, to chew and to gnaw. So as I look up at the clock and we're running out of time, I just want to leave you with that closing reflection and we'll really pick up here uh, next week and and I will do so with uh, Chris Seibert and Derek Ellen joining me. In the meantime, I just continue to encourage you to, to go deeper in your faith, in your study of theology of the body, and just not what we talked about 
uh, this evening, certainly important subject matter, but also all of the riches that come to us from such a beautiful study. Okay, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.